Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. What an awesome episode we just did with Andy Bromberg, who's the president and founder of CoinList. We covered a lot of topics. This is a conversation that I really wanted to have for a long time because the ICO craze was such a big part of our history. But how do I cover it objectively? You know, do I cover it with someone who ran an ICO? Do I cover it with a regulator? Do I cover it with someone who went to jail for the, Like, who do I talk to? And so talking to Andy was a great idea because CoinList, which spun off from AngelList, was a company that out of 3,500 projects that came to them, they only worked with eight of them. This is a company that really, really is good at due diligence. And we talked about what they looked for in a project. And so it's so crazy that when he said that he only worked with eight, we talked about six different metrics or access that they look for. We talked about some crazy stories, how Balaji, who was the CEO of Coinbase, whispered in the ear of, of Andy and a lot of other Bitcoin and blockchain people that you know today at Stanford in 2012. These were the founders of the Stanford Bitcoin group. I didn't know this. This was such a crazy thing how they all got involved so early on and some of the crazy stories behind that. We talked about like what is an IEO and STO and why Andy is really, really bearish and doesn't like the idea of like the IEO and, and, and some of these negative things. But there are a lot of, there's a lot of good that's coming out of the industry as well. We talked about what are the legal structures that work? What are some of the token economics? We talked about some really cool thing about Andy's life, how he got involved in politics right after school and then, then jumped back into Bitcoin. And some of the, the, the people that he met were some really, really interesting topics. You know, like I asked some questions that I, that I still I'm trying to get a better answer of. Like, how do you transfer value to the token itself from the company? Like, how do you how do you transfer that value? Why do we see some companies that are so successful, but the token itself is shit? And then how do you incentivize the good? And then how do you in- disincentivize the bad? We talked about this and so many more topics on today's Untold Stories. Stay with us and I'll be right back with you right after the ads. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in, what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash charlie it's such an easy card to use you get the card in the mail you download the bitpay app you put bitcoin on the app and when you want to send bitcoin from the app into your debit card it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered it's really so easy you almost wonder like why didn't this come out in 2011 when bitcoin first launched well it was very difficult to do in fact i actually tried to launch my own debit card but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like. 
Um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees and I don't like that. So check it out. BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. That's BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. I'm super excited to share that we're now working with BitPanda here at Untold Stories. BitPanda is a leading European platform for investing in digital assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Their core product is an easy-to-use crypto on-ramp and digital asset broker with over a million users. How cool is that? You can not only trade crypto like Bitcoin and Ether, but you can also trade digitized gold and around 30 other digital assets. What's amazing about BitPanda is how easy it is to set up an account within minutes and get going with the minimum amount of just one euro. So make sure you check out BitPanda. They are a sponsor of Untold Stories. I love them, especially if you're in Europe or anywhere in the world, BitPanda.com. Thank you so much, guys. Over the years, a lot of companies have tried doing crypto social networking. But the problem is that there are a lot of really good social networking apps already out there like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. How do we build a social network that's perfect for crypto? Well, I want to talk about Pepo, our newest sponsor of Untold Stories. Pepo is an amazing social media app that's built for the crypto community. What's really cool about it is that you can get rewarded for uploading and putting out good content, and you can also reward with crypto people who put up content that you really, really like. It's fast and simple, and it's the first crypto-powered app to be approved by the Apple and Google app stores. You can find me on Pepo right now at Charlie Shrem, the same handle as my Twitter, and I'm going to be posting interviews, travel videos, and more. So make sure you check out Pepo. It's super cool. Pepo.com. Enjoy it. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem and you're listening to Untold Stories. It's so good to be back in the saddle here at the studios in beautiful Florida. I was out for a few weeks traveling around the world and then I got that that the sickness, the flu, when the, uh, I was, was joking earlier with, with my guests, how, you know, in Florida, it changes from 90 degrees every day to like 85 every day. And when that happens, you know, our body, our bodies get, 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 need some time to get acclimated. Um, but I'm really excited to do this episode and I want to welcome my guest, Andy Bromberg, who is the, um, founder and CEO of CoinList. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I have to say, I, I want to preface this because the point of untold stories is to talk about any topic and every topic going back from 2010 or 2009 e till today and to document the stories and 
to really talk about things that people want to hear, but also to talk about things that people don't want to talk about. And I'm going to get flack for even talking about, you know, like, oh, you're you're an old school OG, blah, blah, blah. You're talking about ICOs. But you know what? This is a very important topic because we can't discount and we can't forget a lot of the good and a lot of the bad that happened from, you know, in the 2016 to even going back until today world. And a lot of people talked about ICOs and shit coins in a negative, negative light, but there was a lot of good that came out of it. And your company was one of them. And there were a lot of companies that were doing things the right way. And there were a lot of companies and teams and products that were doing things in this market, in this um, th- this token world over the past two, three years, and they were doing it the right way. And I want to shine a light on that. So I'm really, really excited to have you today. And so what I'd like to do is kind of talk about, um, I want to talk about my first question is, and we could talk about what CoinList you know, coin is and, and, and what it became. But the question I have for you is, you know, when you when you guys launched in, in 2017 and you kind of spun off from AngelList, did you foresee um, did you foresee the negatives or did you foresee that things were going to get a little bit too hot and heated in this ICO world? And I don't even like to use the ICO, but did you kind of foresee how things were going to play out? Yeah, I think you characterized it well that uh, there's there's some great things that have happened as a result of this. ICO, a token sale uh, or, or token prolif- proliferation. Um, there's way more. Yeah, what do you call it? Yeah, what do you, I say token generation event. What token do you sales say? is usually our, our term term of art. Uh, just okay, cool. Sales. Yeah. So, but you're right. Most of it was bad, and uh, and I think you know what we've seen in the last year or so is really uh, the separation of the signal from the noise, and uh, and we're going to see that continue. And I think you know I I don't want to sound you know prescient here, but we. When we launched in 2017, we looked at our inbound pipeline right away. There were tons of projects coming to us for for help running their token sales. And the vast majority of them were projects that we did not want to work with. And so we looked at that and we said, wow, if this is the state of the industry right now where a tiny percentage of these projects are ones that we're excited about, um, yes, this is going to get too hot. Yes, this is all going to come crashing down at some point. And what we were really focused on and and remain focused on is sorting out the good from the bad and then helping those good ones succeed in spite of all of the bad things happening around them, which I think is the biggest challenge. You were behind some, some really good ones. So was when, when you said that to yourself, um, did it get better or worse over the years? I think it, it continued to get probably a little bit worse from, uh, summer 2017 when we started working on coin list, uh, through the end of 2017. And then in 2018, it, it, it came crashing down um, pretty meaningfully. And what was interesting is we kept seeing about the same volume of high quality deals coming through, but the volume of low quality d- deals fell off a cliff. And that happened, I think, pretty quickly in, in kind of mid 2018 that um, that separation started to happen. I mean, we've, we've seen now, I have to find the most recent number, more than 3,500 inbound token projects. I'm going to jump around, but I'm going to go back to a lot of these subjects. Um, you said that a lot of high-quality projects continued to come and low-quality projects eventually died off. Do you think that's a product of the market being efficient and eventually 
you know, resolving itself? Or do you think that that was a result of regulations, you know, maybe like government scaring people or was it a, a combination of both? I think, yeah, it's, it's a couple of things. I think the biggest factor was just investors getting more sophisticated. In 2017, investors didn't... Okay, that's a good thing. It's a product of the market. Absolutely. Yeah. But that's not to say that it was just that. And I do think that the regulations made it harder to launch a token project. Uh, And so for people that were not putting a ton of effort in and were just trying to get something out there to make a quick buck, uh, the the regulatory environment made it less worthwhile to do so. Very interesting how that that played out. Um, So I want to go back to to the beginnings and I want to talk about um, exactly, because a lot of the listeners are probably Googling you and, and what you guys do. Um, start from the beginning. Um, uh, and, and I know you started, did you start within a team of, of AngelList Protocol Labs and you started to help one project and then you figured out, hey, this is something that could be potentially beneficial for, for other projects? Yeah, pretty close. So, so Protocol Labs, um, who build Filecoin and IPFS, uh, among other products, uh, we're getting ready to have the Filecoin token sale, which was going to be a big event. And, and they started working on basically a, a platform to run that sale. And, uh, and midway through the process, they realized they could use some help on the compliance side. And so they called up AngelList. And uh, AngelList obviously is, is the top uh, startup fundraising platform out there, has done a lot of on- online fundraising. And so collaborated with Protocol Labs to build this initial platform that became CoinList. And midway through that process, everyone kind of took a step back and realized, like you said, wow, um, this is really hard to, to do one of these token sales. Every single token issuer is going to need this exact same set of services. This seems like a good independent business. And so um, Coinless spun out from AngelList at the end of 2017. That's the point at which I came over um, as one of the founders to uh, to get this thing off the ground. The other founders had, had worked at AngelList previously. Um, and uh, and we spun out this new independent coin list in uh, in fall 2017, uh, just about two years ago. It's pretty unknown that you actually got involved in Bitcoin pretty early, though. Um, you were you were involved in the Stanford Bitcoin Group when you were in school, and um, what was that like? I mean, what 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 is the Stanford Bitcoin Group? Yeah, so the story there is that uh, a number of us took a class uh, called CS 184 Startup Engineering. Um, from a professor named Balaji Srinivasan, who um, most recently uh, was... Oh, yeah, Balaji. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So he was our professor. Uh, and this was before he went to Andreessen, before he he started uh, Earn.com, um, before he went to Coinbase. And he, he was teaching this class. And uh, and the class was amazing. It was about you know how to run a startup, how to build a startup from a pretty pretty technical perspective. And one of the elements of the class was that we had these hackathons every Thursday night. Um, and at 6 p.m., you could meet in this building, all the students, and you would work on a project, some sort of product that you wanted to build. And, uh, and what ended up happening was a small group of us, about seven of us, every single Thursday stayed there from 6 p.m. Thursday to 6 a.m. on Friday, working on our projects. And Apology stayed with us. He was there the whole time hanging out with us and, and, uh, and helping us and working on these projects. What was that like? It was amazing. I mean, we, it was just this environment of people that cared about what they were building working on projects. And I think for, for a lot of the people there, they'd never had that experience before coming out of coming to Stanford to this kind of mecca of, of startups and having the opportunity to work on something with people that are as passionate about building things um, was amazing. And, uh, and so we all, you know, had these, these Thursday night hackathons and then the class ended as classes do. 
and uh, and we all wanted to keep spending time together. So we ended up continuing to meet up and just talk about things and work on things. And uh, and one day, Balaji said to us, uh, he'd always kind of mentioned Bitcoin, talked about Bitcoin, but said to us, "You guys really have to pay attention to Bitcoin. This is going to be a big deal." What year do you think that is? This is either very end of 2012 or beginning of 2013. Do you, do you know what's crazy? How, how this, this is how I see what you just described. Here you are in school and how many people work for Coinless now? Do you think how many people get, are, you know, indirectly or directly are, are earning income from being involved in, in Coinlist? Uh, 30 or so. Okay. So here you are. This, this is what I love about this community. I, I, I just want to point this out and I know I'm jumping around, but here you are in school and and Balaji's like putting putting Bitcoin in your ear, and I love the connections. This is it's such a crazy connection, and you start to stand for a Bitcoin group, and then fast forward, you know, you you end up starting a completely non crypto company, Sidewire, and I want you to tell me about that. So you go off, you graduate, and you do something non Bitcoin related, and then you come back to it because you you have that in your ear, and now you're providing jobs for thirty people. I mean, that is so. I mean, if that is not pro-social behavior, then I don't know what is. I'm with you. I mean, that this uh, I'm so grateful to have heard about this technology at, at that point because, yeah, I planted the seed. And uh, and I've always felt that there were opportunities to be had here. And so, you know, coming in and, and being part of that founding team at CoinList. I mean, that's a crazy story. Yeah. It's good we're, we're on untold stories. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, but, yeah, just rewinding, you know, Balaji kept saying Bitcoin is going to matter. And so we ended up deciding, hey, the, the seven of us and, and Balaji and, and Vijay Pandey, who's um, another professor and also now a, a partner in Dries and Horowitz, um, decided to start the Stanford Bitcoin group. And this we formally started, I think, in 2013. And uh, and that was a really exciting time. Uh, it was you know reasonably early in the industry. So it was still a pretty small community. Uh, and we worked on building some different products. We worked on some academic research around around Bitcoin, um, and we worked on advocacy, and we you know went around and and, and preached the gospel of crypto and uh, tried to pitch people on on its its future potential, um, and uh, and we did that for a couple of years, and that was that was a lot of fun. We met a lot of really interesting people, a lot of whom, to your point, are still in the industry today. Uh, like who? Uh, you know, I, I think about uh, one person we met super early on, Bill Barheit, um, founded Abra was one of the first people we met with as, as the Stanford Bitcoin group. Um, and, uh, and he's obviously still in the industry. Uh, Dan Elitzer, um, who's now at IDEO CoLab Investing, was uh, running the MIT Blockchain Club at the time. And, uh, and we got to know him. Do you want to hear something interesting? So I'm just looking back on my emails. In 2012, um, we had a meeting at Stanford, and it was me, Jared Kenna, Eric Voorhees, um, Trace Mayer, Ryan Singer, because Ryan was part of the Ryan was was a member of the um, the Stanford Peace Innovation Lab, mm. and he was like a paid researcher. I think I don't know what his role was, but this was November two thousand twelve, and we actually went to. It was the first time, you know, I went to Stanford, and because I can I can never get in. I'm one of those kids who was never really you know book smart in school until I went to college, but. Um, but how crazy is that? Is that you were there at the same time, and 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 I was told that this innovation lab was the only really place that Bitcoin was being talked about at the time. But that was a crazy group of people. But um, but Stanford definitely really really should take credit for having a place in kind of like uh, um um fueling 
the early uh, a lot of the early bitcoin entrepreneurs you know i mean you look at um a lot of the the overlap between uh, like ben davenport who founded bitco and in 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 facebook over there and everything a lot of people were like almost like a revolving door at stanford here you know yeah no i mean uh and and even that kind of the class that i was in there a lot of those people are off doing crypto related things now i John Backus and Alan Meyer were in the Stanford Bitcoin group. They founded Bloom. Um, oh, the wow. Holder is was in our class, too, and he uh, founded Dharma. Uh, you know, there's all of these different uh, different people that have gone off and, and are still doing things in crypto at this point, which is really exciting. That must be really good for you, um, you know, to, to be able to do for 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 your Rolodex, but also for relationship and, and, and due diligence. So, um, So tell me a little bit more about like the services that you guys provide but more importantly i want to hear some of the metrics i want to hear like some of the immediate red flags that you think about that no one ever thinks about like for example this guy like beats his wife and because of it we're not getting involved in his project right so yeah God I mean, forbid, you know like that would be a non-starter crazy stuff yeah non-starter uh, obviously <laughs> right um yeah so so in terms of what coinless does just really briefly our primary business is running token sales. And so that means handling all the logistics from compliance to transaction processing to token distribution for a lot of the top sales, uh, Filecoin, Blockstack, Algorand. We just ran the Nervos sale, Origin, uh, a number of others, super selective about who we work with. We vet them really thoroughly. Um, and then we, uh, and I'll talk about what that means. Um, and then we, uh, we work with the project. We off- offer a couple other services we just launched um, Coinless Trade, which is our exchange, um, buying and selling crypto assets live 24-7, um, and, uh, and really focused on capturing the interest in and demand for the up-and-coming crypto assets, the types of tokens that we're running sales for, then allowing those to be traded. Liquid. So like a secondary market before like the tokens are being released? No, post, post-release. So live tokens, uh, live, live crypto exchange. Um, well, it makes sense because these are these investors are already on your platform and they feel more comfortable doing it. But how do you kind of match the liquidity of like Binance or whatever? Yeah, exactly. So we're we're really focused on working with projects like the ones that we are running token sales for. So when we run a token sale for a project, all of their investors are on our platform and the tokens get distributed through our platform. And so we really want to drive liquidity towards those assets. We're not off the bat trying to, you know, capture the biggest chunk of Bitcoin trading or Ethereum trading, um, but rather focusing on those newer assets that we're actually running token sales for, where we already have the investors in the platform. We already have uh, their trust and, and the tokens are being distributed through us. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you guys are managing, you know, kind of the full through and through. Um, how do you how do you allow someone, how does someone get onboarded as an investor on the platform? Do you need, they need to be accredited? Do what if projects don't allow? Do you do your own? Uh, kind of walk me through not just the investor, but a project wants to come to you. How do they engage? What do you look for? How much money in your own effort and time do you put into doing the due diligence of these projects before you say even no? Yeah. So first, briefly on the investor side, investors can sign up with nothing, and then they need to go through different processes depending on what they want to do. So for some some token sales, you need to be accredited in which case we would verify your accreditation status. In some cases, you need to be KYC'd, in which case we would you know, process your identity. Um, so it really, it just depends on a, on a person-to-person basis um, or uh, activity-to-activity basis, what needs to be done there. On the project side, um, 
we like to meet, meet with projects as early in their life cycle as possible so that we can get to know them. Really? And help them. Yeah. And, you know, our view is that there are relatively few great projects in crypto. And we are absolutely willing and, in fact, want to spend as much time with them as possible to help offer advice, guide them, tell them about what we've seen from other offerings and what's been successful and what hasn't, uh, and uh, and help them push towards a really successful token sale and, and beyond. Um, and so, yeah, we invest a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of resources in these projects as we're meeting with them and, and trying to help them out. And then, yeah, the vetting process is important. And we, um, you know, going back to your earlier question, uh, there are absolutely some red flags that we look for. Um, but candidly, I think most of the red flags are pretty easy to spot. Um, and, uh, and what's much more interesting to us is when you get down to these really tight decisions, a project that seems interesting, it has some good attributes, but other things don't make as much sense. How do you make that decision? Is, uh, no, yeah. I don't know. That's yeah, crazy. That's, that's the, the tough part for us. So we've again publicly worked with uh, eight projects in the last two years out of only publicly, eight. yeah, out of 3,500 inbound, or more than that. Um, what are the common denominators of these projects yeah, so we, we versus the 3,500? We tend to evaluate these projects on six axes. One is team. Hold on, I got to get yeah, my notebook right. here. Team, <laughs> product, market deal terms. So those are four things that you should evaluate, I think, with any startup if you're a savvy investor. Can you can you repeat those yeah. really quick for the listeners? Team, is the team strong? Are they going to be able to execute on this? Product, does the product they're building make sense? Is it actually a product that should exist in the world? Market, are they attacking a big market or do we think a big market can be created that will allow this to be a massive result? Uh, and deal terms. Does the price make sense? Do the deal terms make sense? Are they being sensible about how they're, they're, they're putting this thing together? And those are, I don't think that's, those four items are specific to crypto investments. I think those are really any investment you think about making, especially startup investments. Sure. Those are important. But then there's two other aspects that we look at that I think are reasonably specific to crypto uh, that are, are important to vet uh, as a savvy investor. One is the legal structure. And, uh, you know, if you look at more traditional startup fundraising, People don't really innovate on the legal structure for startup fundraising, or at least rarely. They put their standard terms, standard forms, and that's what people use. In, in crypto, people innovate wildly. And so uh, you really have to make sure that you're comfortable with the legal structure that's being used um, around, the, around the token and, and kind of the regulatory status of it and, and all of that. Um, and so that's one thing we look at really closely. And then the last one is, is really, I think, the most interesting one. And this is the one where the highest number of teams uh, trip up that otherwise are really strong. And it's what we call token economics, um, which I know is a kind of term that's used in all sorts of different ways. But when we talk about it, we mean a couple of things. One, if this product and network are successful, will value actually accrue to the token in the long run? That's a very good yeah, question. So we see a lot of projects where we look at it and we say, wow, this is this product makes a ton of sense. This network seems exciting. I understand the use case, but I'm just not convinced that if it is successful, the token will actually go up in value. Now, that doesn't mean they shouldn't build the product. They probably should build the product. But it does mean that investing in the token itself may not make as much sense. Uh, and uh, and so that's uh, at the real. It may be better just to invest I, there. I can't tell you how many tokens that I invested in that I almost wish I just bought equity in the company. Exactly. Sometimes equity just makes more sense. 
So that's, that's one piece of token economics. Will value accrue to the token if the network's successful? The other one is, uh, are the incentives and the disincentives on the network properly calibrated? Do they make sense? So what do I mean by this? Uh, without getting too in the weeds, uh, token networks are about coordinating the actions of a distributed set of actors, of people. And because there's, by definition, no centralized party in a, in a token network to dole out punishment or, or reward people, the incentives built into the network have to be sufficient to make sure that all of the important actors, so whether that's miners or users or developers, are properly incentivized to uh, do, their, do the right thing, do what they need to do to make the network successful. And all the bad actors, people that might attack the network or, or try to exploit it, are properly disincentivized from doing so. And it's hard to attack the network. Interesting. And so evaluating are these incentives properly calibrated is really important because if they aren't, it makes it very likely the network will not be successful. And again, you could have a super compelling product, decentralized product that makes a ton of sense, attacking a big market with a great team behind it. But if if you look at the incentives and you feel like, okay, there's no way that you know miners are really going to be active on this network or uh, there's a huge exploit here where an attacker could attack for for little penalty, um, that makes it uh, a questionable investment as well. Because that's what what type of what type of metrics for networks? What type of metrics work, or what type of things work um, to properly incentivize who you want to incentivize versus disincentivizing who you want to disincentivize? And I mean by things that work, like for example, like um, staking on the network and offering an interest rate. That seems like a, an incentive for users to not put downward selling pressure. What type of other things do you see work and what just doesn't work? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think, uh, and I'll, I'll give you a more substantive answer, but the the most immediate and true answer is we as an industry don't really know yet. We're so early that we have yeah. such limited data on these things. We have seen, we have not seen a lot of these networks come under stress. Frankly, we haven't seen a lot of launch um, that... Uh, we don't know yet. And one of the things that's so exciting to me about this industry is that it is very fertile ground for experimenting with incentives and governance models at a massive scale. A thousand different tokens can be out there experimenting with a thousand different incentivization mechanisms. And that is incredible. That's something that... But how do you how do you do that? You're right. You're right. And, 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 and I'm a huge fan of throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks, but you know, my story, I got in trouble. How do you, how do you do that? How do you experiment? Because I think it was the, the, um, the chief of FinCEN who said it the other day, she said, um, you know, you can't invent a 190 mile an hour car and then say, I'm going to break the speed limit. How do you do that within the confines of, of a legal system that we just, that doesn't have any clarity on purpose. How do you do that? I, I think it's really challenging. I think there's there's a number of answers there. One is, you know, go to jurisdictions where there is clarity or there is flexibility, which a lot of teams are doing. Um, I think another is be patient and uh, and uh, you know wait for clarity to emerge, and uh, and that's something that a lot of teams are doing, and they're just kind of biding their time and, and waiting for uh, for a little bit more clarity. Um, and another is. You know, something that has happened historically, and I don't necessarily advocate for this, but it's something that's worked is, you know, launch in a permissionless way. And, and that's, you know, what Bitcoin did. It's what Ethereum did. Um, 
And, uh, and those are our two best examples so far. So I, I agree with you that the legal and regulatory environment, the gray areas are really challenging, make it really hard to run these experiments. But I'm optimistic that clarity will emerge over time and the industry will be able to continue forward. And we'll see these, these speed bumps as, as just that as blips in the road that, uh, that maybe slowed down progress a little bit, but did not halt it. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder, like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees. And I don't like that. So check it out. BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. That's BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. And thanks for listening to Untold Stories. All right, so I hope you didn't skip my ad because in the early part of the episode, we talked about how Bitpanda is working with us here at Untold Stories. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? I'll tell you why, so don't skip. Basically, what they're doing is to apply the same tech you're used to from Bitcoin to other digital assets. So, for example, you trade real precious metals like gold and silver on their platform 24-7 with ultra-low fees. And what's really cool is that you can trade gold and silver and these other precious metals with other assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other cryptos that they support. So in a nutshell, Bitpanda is advocating the tokenization topic. So they want to bring financial products like stocks, ETFs, and more to everybody who uses their platform anywhere in the world. So check them out, bitpanda.com. Support my sponsors. Have a great day. Over the years, I've learned a lot from crypto winters a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. 
Even in the few weeks since they launched Peppo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements, like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle. We've been seeing over the past month um, EOS versus Kick versus Telegram, and we saw these are three huge companies, three huge projects that raised hundreds of millions of dollars for their for their projects and they both kind of dealt with um, the SEC differently so they both they all three dealt with the government very differently can you kind of talk about um, how differently they did it whereas like EO said this is what we did we may, maybe made some mistakes and we didn't but we're gonna settle with you and we're gonna move forward we're kicking telegram we're almost like fighting uh, one of them settled like what's do you think we're doing a good job nowadays as an, and I didn't say we, cause I'm not really in that industry, but do we, do we, do you think that your industry is doing a good job now dealing with regulators or there's sometimes where you wake up in the morning and you almost like kind of just put your hand on your head and say, uh, why? Like, why yeah, would they do Well, that? I would say, you know, I've definitely had those moments in that latter category, the, the why question. Um, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I think there are a variety of approaches here. There are aggressive approaches, there are passive approaches, there's a whole spectrum in between. And it seems worthwhile for different teams in different positions to be trying that. And I do think that the more teams that are having conversations with the SEC and other agencies, whether aggressively or more calmly, the more clear it is to those agencies that action is needed here. That these are not kind of isolated things where they're trying to set up rules for a single project. It's, it's a whole industry. And, uh, and not a tiny one. And, uh, and so I think that all of that, you know, I can agree or disagree with the individual tactics that individual teams are using. But holistically, the fact that a lot of people are going out and really pushing on this and trying to get clarity, that's a good thing for the industry. And, uh, and it'll that's a good yeah. outlook. That's a good outlook. What, well, I mean, what, in your view, because you got involved around, you got, you started this around the same time. Um, that a lot of the negativity was happening, but what happened? I mean, like in your view, how did the ICO market very get such its bad name? What what kind of happened? What were some of the bad things that people were doing? I mean, it was outright fraud. A lot of it was just outright fraud. People went to jail for this, which is good in in that respect. But I mean, what? I, I of course I would never wish prison on anyone, just because it's it's such a traumatic, life changing, negative situation. But what? I mean, what happened? I think a couple of things happened to give ICOs a bad name. The biggest one was just like we were talking about earlier, the raw number of bad projects. And when I say bad projects, that encompasses a lot of things. It encompasses well-intentioned but poorly executed projects. It encompasses scammy and fraudulent projects. Uh, and and there, there were and you know still are a little bit, uh, a lot of them. And, uh, and people lost money on these. Uh, people saw them for what they really were. Um, and when you have an industry where there's such a high number of bad things, it and, and I think this is reasonable, it starts to color the whole industry. 
it starts to make people think that everything is bad. And you couple that with the fact that the good projects are tackling really technically ambitious goals and those take a while to build means that really quickly you saw a bunch of these bad projects blow up and you didn't see any examples of good projects succeeding because everyone was still heads down building. So if you look at, you know, maybe the the end of last year, the end of 2018, there was this uproar about token sales and 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 you know this bad industry and these bad ICOs and the death of the ICO. Why did that happen? It's it happened because the boom happened at the end of 2017. And by the end of 2018, all the bad projects had blown up and lost people money and everyone was upset. And none of the good projects had actually shipped their product yet because they take a while to build and they're building something ambitious. And so that you combine those two factors, good projects not yet existing and bad projects or not yet shipping and bad projects failing and you get you get a really bad attitude about the industry. Let's talk about legal structure for a second. So um, the first most well-known legal structure actually that was boasted about that the inventor, Stephen Nayroff, in, uh, boasted for, for inventing it and he's going through some some legal troubles of his own right now. But um you know, the, the first kind of most well-known legal structure, and tell me if I'm wrong, was the Ethereum crowd sale and the ERC-20 token. And the, 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 he was the, the legal architect of that. How, how has the legal structure of these token sales changed? And what do you see most projects opting to use for their legal structure for for issuing tokens and, and things like that. Yeah, well, it's it's a, it's a wide field and a little bit hard to generalize, but I'll do my best here. Um, I think what we're seeing is most projects, if they are not imminently launching, so they're raising money to sell tokens at some point in the future um, when the when the network actually launches, they are structuring their offering as as an offering of securities. Um, and you might hear about the term SAFT. Uh, or, or a bunch of other kind of similar structures. But the core idea is we're selling a security and it, it's regulated as a security. And that security works by you giving us investment capital now so we can go and build our project. And then at some point in the future when we launch, we will give you tokens um, proportionate to, to how much you invested. And that overarching structure uh, still, that was what was used a lot during 2017, during the, the boom um, and, uh, and it is still used today. So we see that a lot. We are increasingly seeing projects that are going live and uh, having some functionality, uh, launching and perhaps running a sale at the time of mainnet launch and selling it as a non-security. It's just you know, a product, basically, something that could be used, used for things. Um, and a lot of teams are doing that only outside the U.S. because they can't get comfortable doing so in the U.S., um, but it's a, it's a mixed field. Um, and, uh, and I think we'll see a lot, of, a lot of clarity starting to emerge on that side soon as these projects actually go live and we see what happens. Tell me about the first time you heard about I, IEO, initial exchange offering. What were your initial reactions and thoughts, and have they changed? Well, you know, my initial reaction was uh, I, I get pretty sick of – not sick, but, you know, I get tired of – of everyone comparing ICOs to IPOs. And I actually think it's, it's poorly named for that reason. Yeah, it's really? a terrible... The word I, the term ICO is like the worst thing that we could have possibly... That we could possibly have like given ourselves. Right. Because it's basically like just, hey, we, we need... It's all regulation. Right. It's like offering. The word offering is like 
regulatorily, if that is even a word, just a big no-no. Right. And so, and, and even on top of that, most ICOs happen way before the token is actually live and liquid, right? So all these ICOs are, are raising money, all these token sales are raising money before they launch. And so it's still an illiquid asset. But the definition of an IPO is when an asset becomes liquid. And so I, oh. there's always been this tension where, you know, you go and talk to people outside the industry and, and they're like, oh, you know, CoinList, you guys do ICOs. Um, that's just like an IPO, right? And I'm, it's the answer is no, because most often these are illiquid assets for quite a while. But when I heard IEO for the first time, my first reaction was, oh, finally, this looks a whole lot more like an IPO. Because IEOs, that's, if you think about it, if we put the terminology the other direction, what is an IPO, an initial public offering, except an IEO for a stock? An, an, an IPO is when a stock is initially offered on an exchange for the first time. And, uh, and so that analogy works a lot better. So when I heard that term and heard the concept, I was excited because I realized, hey, this is, this is actually what, um, you know, this is much more analogous to an IPO than, than an ICO is. Uh, and so, you know, I, I thought about that. And then um, it, it's been really interesting to see the, the evolution of IEOs over the last year or so um, and, uh, and where they fit into the ecosystem, uh, which I think is, is totally separate from earlier token sales, uh, which are the types of things that we usually work with. I think what we'll see over time is this evolution where projects raise money in more traditional token sales early on to fund the development of the project. And then at some point, they do something like an IEO uh, to actually put the network live and, uh, and get it trading on, on exchanges. So you think like the, the, the actual token... I mean, what are people actually buying sometimes on these things? Are they buy, I've seen some such creative things. It's like you're not buying a token... You're buying an option that if a token is issued down the road, you'll get this many tokens based on how much equity you own. Like I've seen some crazy, do regulators just kind of like blow over that and know that it's it's just a, a way for people to skirt around their own laws or, or are they allowing these things to go through? Well, well, what are you seeing on that, the legal side thinking. of things? Yeah. So I think, again, most most often when we see those sorts of things, the teams are usually good about treating them like securities. They're not actually skirting around regulation. They're treating it like a security. There's, the craziness in the structuring is largely to address uh, issues. So, you know, the whole option thing you were just talking about. What happens if uh, you invest in a company, you invest in a SAFT that promises you tokens at some point in the future? And then maybe it's one of those projects that we were talking about earlier where the team's working and then they kind of realize hold up, we don't need a token. We're building a good product, but there's no token necessary here. And so then they decide to not issue tokens. Are those SAFT investors screwed? Do they not have a right to anything? Because, you know, the company was selling them future tokens. That's a very good question. So what's the the answer? Well, so in some cases early on, that has happened. But I think now what's happening is you're seeing – more creative structures. This is kind of what you were getting at. They end up looking a little crazy, but it just feels necessary where um, the the contract initially is for eventual tokens, or if tokens don't get issued, it will turn into equity instead. Or it's that you're buying equity, and at some point, if tokens get issued, you'll get a distribution of tokens as well. Um, yeah. And so you get these, these funky structures, but it's really to 
it's not trying to avoid regulation. In fact, these are generally treated properly as, as securities. Um, it's much more about trying to avoid issues um, due to this kind of dual fundraising structure where people are raising with either tokens or equity. And, uh, and you need to make sure investors are protected in either case. Another, the last question I had on this on this subject is going back to the access, you said, how do you transfer value from a company to the token? Um, and if you want to use an example without creating the, the, you know, saying the company's name, there are a lot of those now where like the company's profitable, but the token itself is is doing shit. It's not moving at all because they never figured out how to, they just thought people would speculate on the token forever. It's a it's a challenging question to answer. I, I believe that the best tokens, the true definition of what a token is, uh, have nothing to do with a company. And that they are, they may be created by a company, they may be created by people and launched, but the the token exists in a wholly self-contained, decentralized ecosystem where there's the idea that there's a company tied to it doesn't even make any sense. Look at Bitcoin, right? There is no company tied to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is functional by itself. And uh, and that I think is is critical for uh, you know, being a truly decentralized, uh, true definition of a token, um, and uh, Bitcoin came. Bitcoin became that because there was nowhere else for it to go. I mean, when Bitcoin launched, I guess the expectations of what it was, what it was, and what it was going to be was very different. You know this. So, but with these tokens and these, um, the tokens and these other coins, there's kind of like an expectation of what we want it to be from what the day it launches. So it's a very, you can't really like grow organically that way. Well, there's an expectation, but that expectation can be shifted. And I would hope that these tokens can be launched. They're launched by a company with some intentions and perhaps the token grows and the network grows over time. And then the community decides, hey, these intentions are no longer what we want from this and either are able to shift the direction of that token towards what the community wants away from what the company wanted, or they fork the network. And they go and build a new and better version that, that gets more adoption. And, uh, and I think that's the way these networks have to work. If networks are being controlled by a company and their direction is being controlled by a company, then, uh, then I do not think they are, they are truly tokens. And I, I don't necessarily believe in the idea of, uh, for this definition of tokens, for value being transmitted from a company to the token. I think that the value has to be totally within the token ecosystem. Sidewire. Tell me about, you know, you were in the Stanford Bitcoin group and this was like the early days of Bitcoin. And then you you graduated from school and you ended up starting a, a totally non-Bitcoin um, project. And that, that was actually uh, in the political media space. So tell me about that. And also tell me, like, are there any things that you've, you know, brought over to, to CoinList yeah. that you've learned from from Sidewire? Right. So this was this was in 2014 and, and a, a, a minor fact check. I, I unfortunately didn't actually graduate. So I left school uh, a couple of years in to go and start Sidewire. Um, Let me tell you a, a funny story. M- most of us didn't graduate. Yeah, right. <laughs> I did. But like I had to go back and it was because my dad was like, my dad was like, I wasted all that money. You better freaking graduate or else I'm like invoicing you for all that money that I spent. Yeah. And I know that he would have done it. So I finished that. Uh, I went back and finished, but I also got involved in Bitcoin in college. So I didn't. What, what's the point? In fact, you know, you know Jeremy Gardner. Yeah, of course. So, so Jeremy actually was in college, and and sat with me in my apartment one day, and he's like, 
Charlie, my name is Jeremy. You don't know me from a hole in the wall. This was pre this is pre his involvement. And he said, I want to get involved in this Bitcoin thing. Should I leave school? And I told him, stay in school. Don't get involved in Bitcoin now. This is 2014. And you know what he did? He fucking didn't listen to me, left yeah. school, ended up investing in like a ton of Bitcoin, found an auger, very, very successful. So I'm actually happy that people don't listen to me sometimes. Yeah. But going back to your story. So what happened? Right. So, well, it's 2014. I was doing the Stanford Bitcoin group. And I think the obvious thing for me to do would have been something in crypto. Uh, but I had this this problem, which was that I thought I believed in, in, in crypto, but I couldn't tell. I thought it was a 50-50 coin flip whether or not there was going to be a single successful crypto asset, Bitcoin, or if there were going to be many. And any startup I could think about starting was predicated on one of those two assumptions. And I didn't want to add this total coin flip to what is already a low success rate for startups. I, I was looking at it and saying, startups are likely to fail. I have this, anything I can think of relies on one of these two outcomes. I think those outcomes are a coin flip. I don't want to add another 50% to that, to that failure rate. And so I said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to crypto. But right now, I'm going to go and do something else. And, uh, and so I did. So I, uh, I had an amazing, amazing co-founder um, for, for Sidewire. Um, and yeah, like you said, it was, a, it was a platform for mostly political experts to chat publicly about the news of the day. So think kind of Twitter without the noise. Um, really interesting experience, built uh, a bunch of traction among experts and, and had some great conversations. Ultimately, the, the product itself didn't really do what it needed to do for consumers. Um, and so we wound it down at the end of 2017 uh, right as I was getting started with CoinList. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I absolutely took, took a lot of learnings over um, a lot of things on, on just the operational side, how to run a startup and build a team and, and all of that. Um, but in terms of more specific things, I spent a lot of time in DC for uh, how was that? Sidewire. It was really interesting. It was, I mean, I was there during the, a lot during the 2016 election cycle and uh, it is a, it's a fascinating environment. And I, I'd like to think that I took away some learnings about how DC works and how to interface with elected officials and regulators that is super useful today as, we, you know, as we've been talking about, as we march through this, uh, this regulated world of, uh, of crypto. Where do you see, I wasn't planning on asking this, but I, I might as well, I was having a conversation with, with a friend of mine right before the, the show, but I mean, where do you see our country, what do you see happening in 2020? Like, do you see us... Do you see us like splitting into this, like having the societal change as, as, as people in this country? Do you, do you, I mean, some people like predict like civil wars, like crazy things. Uh, where do you see us in, in a few years from now? Yeah, well, you know, I, I try to stay a little bit far away from political prognostications, but at a high level. Sa- same thing, not politically, but more of like as a society. Right. I guess that was my question because I'm also apolitical and I think that you're involved in crypto. You probably should be somewhat apolitical just because you're you're what you're doing is apolitical it's not political it, it, it is in its own way but it is not involved you shouldn't be involved in the administration of the day right right it's not, um, not partisan yeah yeah exactly that's, that's what i was trying to say yeah so i i do think that that socially and societally um i think the trends that we have been seeing this kind of uh division uh, and increased partisanship and all of that, I think that's going to increase for a little while. And, uh, and you know, what happens in, in 2020 and, and beyond, 
I don't know about the specifics, but I do think we're going to see increased partisanship, increased divisiveness for a little while. I don't know how that resolves. Um, and I, I really hope that it does cleanly. Um, I'm not a believer in, in the civil war theories or anything like that. Um, but I, I do think that, uh, you know, when, when, when things get, when people get further and further apart from each other, that can absolutely create some, uh, some painful, painful processes in terms of getting out of it. So, uh, we will, uh, we will really see what, what happens in the next few years. So what's next for, for, for CoinList? What's next for this sector of the crypto space going forward in that respect? Um, how do you see us, do we, do we see more of these security token offerings? Do you think we'll go back to like an ICO, IEO thing, or is that kind of dead? Yeah. Well, what's next for CoinList is a big focus on this coinless trade exchange that we just launched and trying to grow that and, and, and build a community around, around this, uh, this trading. But what I think is next for the industry is, uh, most importantly, a bunch of the projects that raised money in 2017 and early 2018, they're going to launch. And I think what happens there is going to really set the direction for the industry going forward, seeing how these projects do that raise a lot of money or built a great team or built a great product. Are they able to get adoption? Are they able to grow? And, and that will really set the tone going forward. Um, and so I'm excited for, for what the coming months have to bring on, on that front. I don't think it is time yet for security tokens, for these kind of asset back tokens that, that we hear about. Um, and I think that- Really? What, what are those? I mean, like, what's the story? Yeah. So, so the idea here is that you can take existing assets. Let's talk about maybe real estate. That's kind of a, a canonical example. Um, and tokenize them and represent their ownership digitally on a blockchain um, and, uh, and allow for more liquid trading and, and programmability and, and access um, to these assets uh, in a digital format. Um, I think it's a really interesting concept. And I actually do believe that in the long run, it will be successful and we'll see a lot of assets moving to uh, on-chain ownership records and, uh, and tradability. I think the challenge here is that Right now, there just isn't demand for that from the investor side. Crypto investors do not really want tokenized assets right now. Traditional investors do not really want tokenized assets right now. And so until there's significant investor demand for, for those sorts of things, I don't think we're going to see a big boom in those. At some point, yes, but but today and, and probably for the next year or two, I'm, I, I'm not particularly bullish on that, on the tokenized asset wave. So what does it do? Just get down, build your project and stay boring? I think that's it. Get, build your project, stay boring and, and grow adoption, right? And this is, yeah, I'm really excited about some of the things that are happening right now around, um, around gaming, uh, even around DeFi at some level that we're trying to build real, and when I say we, I mean an industry, trying to build real use cases for people to actually get excited about and use. And that is going to be critical for, for the industry moving forward. There's, we can only spend so much time building for ourselves before we we have to start building for others that's a very good quote that i should write down you know um but you're right like to expand on that we are we're we're building an industry for ourselves here for ourselves for for our families for our own jobs for our livelihood i mean at the end of the day we're not working in an industry and building our companies in an industry that has been around for so long We're, we're trailblazing our own industry here so, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on that because you are seen as the leader, you, you know, CoinList is, is seen right now as the angel list for, um, for this space. 
And so what you do, you know, not to put on, you know, under pressure on you, but what, what you do really has, um, has a big effect on what happens in the industry. Do, do you think about that? No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With, with great power, right. Comes great responsibility and, and Spider-Man, you know it. And, uh, and so, yeah, we, we think about that all the time that people look to us for advice and counsel and we strive to give the very best advice we can, but we also know, and we always try and be honest about this, things are uncertain and the industry is changing every single day. And so, uh, people should seek advice from as many experts as they can. They should, uh, you know, listen to as many episodes of your podcast as they can. They should try and learn from people and, uh, and, and put that together and, uh, and build a perspective on how they should be operating. But yes, absolutely. We see, we see a lot of responsibility that we have. We, we want to make sure we do the best we can and, and help serve the industry. So we have a lot of listeners who probably want to work for potential projects that, that you're helping. We have potential uh, executives at projects that, that may want your help. Um, how do these projects contact you? What are some things that they should prepare in advance? Uh, some of the things that you're looking for. They listened to the episode. They heard you know, all the different metrics that you're looking for in the axis. Um, what's their next step? I mean, because that's what the show is about, really. So what's this? Ne- what's their next step? for for being able to 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 work with you yeah well anyone should always feel free to reach out to team at coinless.co and we're super responsive on that um and we look at all those all those emails um absolutely if you're someone that wants to work for a project reach out to us these projects are always hiring and we can always put you in touch with with the right person there um and uh and on the project side reach out and uh, and we want to start a conversation with you it's never too early uh, and, uh, and we want to understand what you're trying to do and how you're trying to build it and see if we can be helpful as you're going through that process. Um, you know, I, I hesitate to offer kind of a set of recommendations or, or asks because everyone is at a different stage. Some people are just at the most nascent idea stage. Some people are gearing up for a token sale and have legal docs in order and have built all that out. Um, but really, whatever it is that, that you have, um, Come to us and, and show us, and, and let's talk about it, and and, uh, and we'll do our best to uh, do our best. Do you have an email an email newsletter? Do you host webinars or meetups yeah. for people to to follow you? Yeah, we do. We have an email newsletter. You can sign up if you sign up for a Coinlist account on Coinlist.co. Um, you'll get the newsletter. Comes out about every other week, um, and uh, and yeah, it's got a great mix of stuff that we're working on, industry news, things you should know, uh, job opportunities, um, all sorts of stuff. And uh, we really want to make sure that the uh, the coinless community stays strong and can be, you know, at some level, a, a center of gravity for the industry and uh, and help guide things in the right direction. Uh, a cool idea um, for your back pocket, and you can give me a credit if you want down the road, but I was thinking like that you're in a good position to create this like job marketplace for people you know, because you probably work with a lot of companies that are hiring and you probably run across people that are looking for work. That could be a really good um, kind of sub thing for you where you take a piece of the person's salary if you help them get a job. It could be a good revenue stream for you. Yeah, that's a great idea. So we actually we have a product called Coinless Build where we help projects run online hackathons um, to build their developer community and get things built on top of their their network. And we've worked with a ton of great teams. We ran a hackathon with Zero X. We ran a hackathon with uh, Dapper Labs and Cheese Wizards team. We ran a hackathon with New Cypher. We ran one with Ethereum, Tezos, Stellar, Near Protocol. Um, so we've we've done all these hackathons to connect developers to teams, and uh, and a lot of those 
uh, have turned into yeah hiring conversations or, or more collaborative conversations where the teams have funded those developers to go and keep building different different products. Um, and so that's something else we're really excited about um, that uh, that we can try and facilitate those connections. You're absolutely right. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Coinlist.com. Um, there's a lot of information that everyone um, learned from this show. So thank you for giving us that that data and that information. And uh, and I'm really pleased with, with the topics and the conversation that we had. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com. Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Schrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Schrem, to continue the conversation Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.